everyone, Shannon Tipton here, and welcome to the Learning Rebels Coffee Chat, where all the cool L&D peeps hang out. And while you're here, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future chats. Today, the cool kids are talking about evaluating training impact. When planning learning initiatives, there is an expectation from the business for the people participating in the training to have gained improved skills, demonstrate behavior change, and in general, place into action the lessons learned, connecting lessons to learning to action. Now, the harsh reality is that oftentimes because of the pressures of time and changes, we don't often begin with the end in mind. Meaning, we develop a learning initiative without a plan as to how we are going to evaluate training impact to ensure business value. And because of this, we try to back into what success looks like after the program has been put into place. But can we get in front of this with a little more forethought? Therefore, the question on the table is, what processes are we using or can we use to ensure our training initiatives are adding real business value? So without further ado, let's get to it. All right. Well, welcome everyone to another Learning Rebels Coffee Chat. And today we are talking about evaluating training impact. So this is going to be a very interesting conversation, I suspect. So now discussing training impact. Here's the question that I have for you. What sort of processes do you use? to ensure that you are beginning with the end in mind. And when I say beginning with the end in mind, that is when we put together a training program, oftentimes we don't think about how are we going to measure that level three or level four. And we don't think about it until we come to the conclusion of the program. Either we have concluded developing it or we have already implemented it on some scope. And when we start thinking about how we're going to measure it at that point, it's almost too late, isn't it? Because you really need to start thinking about how you're going to evaluate it at the very beginning. So now my question to you is, how are you doing that? What is your process for considering what you're going to evaluate, how you're going to evaluate, what people you're going to get involved in the evaluation process? How is that all working for you? My company is relatively new. I mean, we're not new, but we're kind of new in terms of setting up our own training department. And for us, it's about establishing a consistent intake process that includes what is the actual results that you're looking to achieve with this course. Because Mm -hmm. most of our courses are coming from our internal clients making a training request. So what is the behavior or metric that you're looking to improve? What is the baseline what's your goal with it? And then what would be the ROI impact? And that that helps us twofold. It helps establish what is the data? Where is the data coming from? Who is pulling it? Or what system does it live in? What is the, the goal of this class? And it also helps us prioritize because we have limited resources. So is this a training project that is going to prioritize high and we need to get it done ASAP? prioritize low, or is it not even something that we want to take on? Because 
at the end of the day, the company has these larger objectives that we all need to work mm-hmm. towards and a lot of training requests come in that are nice to have. And those are the ones that are the hardest to measure. Yes. And that sounds very familiar. How many of you have intake forms like that? I told them, look, we need to have an intake form and we need to be asking our stakeholders and a manager, what does success look like? How will we know that this training program actually did anything? Now, I do a lot of compliance training, which is a really hard kind of thing, but like it's kind of hard to measure that people didn't do something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But when they do, like we've had zero reports to the hotline. So maybe we need to speak up training and see because really a thousand people and zero reports? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't sound right. Right, <laughs> right. Everybody's ethical. Nothing bad is happening. You know. So compliance, I think, is difficult. But when we're doing real training, I want to know were there 50% more applications? Were there 50% more complaints? Were there, you know, how do we know that people are using this correctly? Do you want less calls to the IT help desk? Right. Yes. And so my question, Jessica, is who is making the decision as far as which projects get accepted, which do not? We have a department that does project management for a lot of things, training included. And then we have project managers within, well, they're performance consultants. So they manage the projects and they also liaise between training design, training delivery, any vendors or contractors we use and our internal clients. And so that decision is made pretty collaboratively with a lot of discussion. The more data that you know we, we have, the easier it is to make those decisions, but it's done in partnership with the requesters. And so if you tell somebody this project prioritizes medium, you have to be able to demonstrate why. So having a form that says, you know, who is the audience? How many people is this? Uh, as well as what's the metric we're hoping to impact and who are the champions, right? Mm-hmm. If Joe Schmo over in some team is a champion versus, you know, an executive level leader, sometimes that'll bubble something up even <laughs> You know, we want to have that that solid ROI on those metrics, but um, the the prioritization is a combination of things, and it can be done by really anybody who's making the decisions in the training org. I know different organizations are set up different ways, but it's not going to be your designers. It's more likely to be like your performance consultants or project Mm -hmm. managers to do Mm -hmm. that. Yes, and I see uh, some of the comments in the chat Heather, the need for speed with business changes can often trump a good intake form or needs analysis, which is true. The speed of business, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And that may impact how you go about deciding which training programs rise up to the top of the priority list, but it shouldn't impact how we're going to ultimately evaluate its success, right? So when we think about measuring that success, what sort of matrix are you looking for? How are we connecting lessons to learning to action from a business perspective? Amanda? So for our leadership development program, that is our biggest program that we do a program evaluation on. And it's taken many years to try to turn the perception of just needing to look at like the butts and seats, which is not really an accurate measurement of growth. So (laughs) it's been needing to 
advocate for that and get individuals to understand that. So what we've started doing is that this program is stable. It is mature. We have demonstrated um, sustainability for the last decade. And we have a pre and post assessment measure set up. So with a pre and post assessment measure, we can identify the competency growth from the beginning to the end especially when we aggregate it to the broad competency itself versus the itemized questions. And then we can even aggregate it across the entire program itself. So the program itself has actually shown both practical and statistical significance growth, which is quite cool. But given that the only monetary funding that we get for this program that is actually easily trackable is our contracts for in-person deliveries. So what we've been able to do is utilizing the data that's in our LLMS to see how many training opportunities in average over this period of time does someone attend. And we use that number to go, okay, so if we say that we have had a capacity uh, across this contract of just pulling numbers out. Um, so these are not accurate numbers by any means, but just to kind of demonstrate that if our contract is a thousand dollars and we have, let's say people are attending two trainings on average, and there are 10 people in the program. So 10 times two is 20. So dividing a thousand by 20 equals how much it costs to send each person per training dividing out the contract cost per the amount of butts and seats. That gets us our butts and seats contractual investment. So if we were to divide a thousand by 20, that's $50 per person attending a learning opportunity. But if they attend two, we can say that with your investment of a hundred dollars per this program that they're in, and you're seeing this growth, this is the growth that your investment dollars have kind of helped make happen because this is one of the resources that are available for them to achieve this goal of growth. Well, first off, are these external customers or internal customers? In-house. 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 Okay. And so then each department, I take it from your example, pays for their training. So they don't pay for the training. We have a budget that we offer this training for free, but the budget is we still have to pay for it. So it's a voluntary program. Right. So I think where I'm a little lost is that's a monetary kind of a return on investment, but how are you connecting that to whether or not the leadership development program has had impact on the business? The pre and post assessment. So it's a behavioral post assessment on frequency and they're on competencies that are relevant to the agency. So because it's behavioral frequency, the responses are either daily that they're engaging in these behaviors or it's three times a week. So we can show that individuals have moved to maybe doing these behaviors once a week to doing them on average three or more times a week or daily. Okay. So we've been able to substantiate based upon like a behavioral response. And yeah, behavioral response doesn't get deeper than that until we do our follow-up, which is, I won't say it's a true 360, but it takes their supervisor's perception of their growth six months later, in addition to what sustained growth have you seen six months after you've exited the program. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what they're doing is in short, so we're doing 360s 
And in those 360s, the managers are identifying what behavioral changes that they're seeing. Yep. And some people have um, illustrated that they have had responsibility growth, that they have had um, a job change that has occurred from it because they were getting groomed while Mm -hmm. they were in the program. It took many years to getting to this place in which the program evaluation is at. However, in L&D, we know one of the first areas to get cut when there's budget constraints is Mm -hmm. L&D. So by trying to substantiate this program is trying to ensure that for the long term, it stays. Right, right. We also similarly have level three behavior change types of assessments. One thing that we do where I work is sometimes we'll submit things that we do for a variety of award applications. And I noticed that in those rubrics for those outside awards, they keep emphasizing that L3 needs to be third-party validated. So I I guess I'm ultimately curious to know, what are some things that you all are doing that is third-party validated? Because the only thing I can think of is manager observation. I think that's a great question. And I'm curious as to what other people are doing, because you're right. We do say that it needs to be third-party observed. And a lot of times, I even kind of am on the cusp of whether or not management observation is valid. You know, you have the halo effect happening here. Regardless of who you are or where you are, we still have biases. There are people that we inherently like more than somebody else, or we appreciate somebody's work more than another. And when we do that third-party type of observation, or when we do that manager type of observation, we may put a halo over someone versus not so big of a halo over somebody else. And then that management observation becomes skewed. So now how do we handle that? So is that training going out and doing work observation? So Jessica, what are what are your thoughts? So we haven't done this, so I don't have any experience to speak to, but I've been speaking with some contractors who've been talking to me about um, immersive simulations and how to measure behavioral changes for that person. So it's not about what they say they do. It's about what they do when put in that situation. So right. if I have a video, we'll just use coaching as an example. And I've got, you know, my employee who's, I've got this interpersonal interaction with them. And then I have to select how I'm responding to it. And it gives me immediate feedback. And then I continue the conversation, gives me another spot to make a decision. And so what they're doing is it's not about what you know, or what you say you do. It's about what you do when you're actually in that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can find a way to score those, you can put them through that simulation before the program and after the program to see if there's an actual behavioral shift in the decisions they make. Because I think we all think we're pretty smart people and make great decisions. And if I look through a multiple choice test or if I'm taking a survey, well, I can see what the desirable decision is going to be. So I'm going to select, oh, right. yeah, I do that. I do that all the time. But if you put me in a situation where, you know, I have lots of good options to choose from, but you're measuring a specific skill, I might answer it differently. Mm-hmm. That's an idea. I don't know. Has anybody tried that before? Do you have any feedback on how well it went? We don't actually try it because first of all, we produce training for other organizations. So we really don't do the intern. In fact, we don't even really do internal training at all. <laughs> but a colleague of mine, actually, they use the digital coaching so the person videotapes, kind of like what you were saying, Jessica, mm-hmm. but a person videotapes themselves doing what 
was required of them or asked of them or the steps showing that they know how they have it videotaped. I, I'm sure there's ways of checking it. I didn't spend a lot of time talking with her, but she showed me a couple videos that have been uploaded. And then the manager reviews those videos and gives coaching tips and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that is one way that I've seen where they actually virtually can handle the coaching and the kind of checking to see if it was actually done. And then they enter that score and they enter information and give them additional coaching tips or things like that. So I think that the technology is available and out there to do that. I just don't know how many organizations are really doing that. And I just, mm -hmm. I actually love that idea. There are, there are a number of applications that can do that, especially with, with sales people where they can upload their, you know, their elevator pitch, or they can upload a video of them describing features and benefits of a product, right? And so this way, the artificial intelligence can one, score it, if that's the way that you want it set up, or you can have a unbiased third party, like uh, somebody from the L&D department, or peer-to-peer type of evaluations as well, where people can listen and give their comments and give their feedback. There are a variety of tools that can make that sort of thing happen. Because remember, level three is all about whether or not they are using the skills taught in the training. It's about behavioral change. It's about productivity. It's about whether or not they're actually using the tools versus level four, which is whether or not we're having real business impact. If we back into that then, we think about who is actually measuring that level three, who can measure that level three. Is it independent work observation? You see this happening every so often. If when you go to the airport, you might see somebody walking around and watching somebody with a checklist. And that's because they're putting them through a rubric. So rubrics are one way of being able to help managers assess whether or not their people are being more productive or using the skills used on training and taking away some of the bias that might be there if you show them how to use that rubric. So is anyone using tools like that to help establish whether or not people are actually using the skills taught? I have a question related to that. So sure. I'm thinking that it was actually Gordon Food Service that was using this system. And I think they may be regional to the Midwest. I'm not sure. They actually also had customer feedback mm -hmm. that played into, because it was a sales team that was on training and things like that and, and how they were doing. And so they also had customer feedback that played into that, which to me would be a third party. Yep. Similar to rubric. Now this, they may not have used the rubric, the customers, but. Well, I'm sure a customer isn't using a rubric unless it's like a. Survey or something. Right. Exactly. Like a secret shopper or something along those lines. If anyone has like some examples of the training objectives that you would write for those chapters or those courses with regards to that in mind, looking looking ahead for the outcomes, but using the objectives to, you know, state, mm -hmm. expect this type of measurement. I'm just curious what those would look like. Going back to the sheet, it's um, something that I let some folks that were unfamiliar with that analysis I let that go out in the wild and it came back just completely skewed. They they weren't sure what it was or what it what was in it. So I kind of kept that close to the chest after that. But the level three, when you're writing your training objectives, that's within the objectives. Is that correct? 
what we want to measure. Right. And you would have that sort of actionable outcome attached to any of these objectives, right? So I wanted to add that we have a program, a leadership program, and we at the end of that have a half day simulation where they have to pull the skills that they've used throughout the six months and based off of a rubric that we allow assessors to use to assess our Mm -hmm. um, participants that are going through the simulation. And then at the end, we kind of send those rubrics out to them. So that is listening to that third party. That is somewhat how we use a third party. We use assessors that are not not necessarily facilitators of the program. They just have really good leadership skills and so that they are able to um, actually watch and listen to our participants have a difficult conversation and they assess them off of what skills they are bringing from the program into that conversation. So that's something that we use in thinking about that third party where it's not a manager, it's not their manager, Mm -hmm. it's not even someone that's going through the program. So it's not peer-to-peer, it's someone that has great communication skills that we have sought out to be assessors for our program. So I just wanted to share that. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that's a really great example. Jessica? I mean, uh, are you when you say third party, are you talking about contractors or people who are not the learner's supervisor or in the training org? They're just somebody else within the company who has been deemed, you know, they, they've got those skills on lock. Third party, someone else within the organization. So it's not a peer to peer. So it's not someone that's in their cohort. It could be someone from a past cohort that has come in, we pull people from the organization that we know that have um, had success in difficult conversations. And sometimes it's even some of the facilitators throughout the program um, because they are aware of what skills that we have taught. But most times it is someone that these people may not even know. So when they come on to, and we do it in a virtual setting. So when they come on and have these conversations, it's someone they, they have no idea who this person is. So mm-hmm. I think it's good when you have that. Um, I was listening to the biases around management or mm-hmm. that peer-to-peer. And we took it away from that peer-to-peer because we felt like, you know, you have those peers that are like, well, they almost did a good job. So I'm going to give them this right. score. And then right. we have the same, we have a rubric based off of performance management or coaching or difficult conversations. And each assessor has a copy of that rubric that they're using to assess the um, participants. Mm-hmm. And to tie that into JD's question, all of that would have been put into, well, the, the learning objectives that the instructional designer would have used in order to create the Crowser program, but also in the overall goals that are sent to the participants. And the way that I like to think about this is if we let the participants know from a human perspective what the overall outcomes are going to be. For example, you're going to participate in this sales negotiation program in order to learn top converting elevator pitches So that way you will make higher commissions and that the organization will improve its top line revenue. And so when you have those elements in there, you will improve your commission and the organization will see top line revenue. Then you've got really distinct outcomes that impact the business and also impact the person. And that is what people generally want to know. Now, from an instructional design perspective, when we think about the longer, more formal learning objectives, that's where that sits. So by the end of this class, the participant will walk away with five different elevator pitches to be able to 
connect with their customers to handle any objections they may have about the product, right? And so those are the sorts of objectives that might be hidden. Those are our guidelines. So how do you handle the fact that the training may have impacted that number, but there's probably other things impacting that number? How do you Mm -hmm. handle that? I'm always open to hearing what other people have to say. I'll start with my opinion. This falls within the needs analysis. So when you've got your analysis document that goes to the business sponsor, you say, this training is going to impact XYZ along with the change in leadership, the rollout of a new process, the installation of Salesforce.com. When you have one plus one plus one, this equals three. So while we're not claiming full credit for success, when it comes back and if, if something doesn't quite work out, you can say, well, we said that this would happen if the Salesforce.com rollout occurred the way that it was supposed to. That didn't happen. So subsequently, we didn't see the success that we should have had. So you put that all in your analysis or your, your instructional design document where you're analyzing all of the different risks that go along with the training program. And this is where you say certain things are contingent or their prerequisites. It's important to set the expectations of what we want. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people just want to do training because they think it's the answer. Mm -hmm. And so setting those expectations and really challenging them and saying, how do I know this is going to work? Really gets the managers thinking. It's mostly Mm -hmm. managers and directors that come to me for training. Mm -hmm. And in cases where I know it can be an impact, where I know that there will be data, I really push to get those reports, to get the data. What is it now? And then after the training, what is it? Like, it is a challenge though, because some people think I should just create the training and not ask those <laughs> questions. Right, right. Just do it. Yeah, I think that goes back <laughs> to the intake form. And this is where sometimes where we conflate the training needs analysis with the evaluating impact. So the training needs analysis is determining whether or not we should be doing this training in the first place. That's what the needs analysis tells us. The evaluating impact is the latter part of that. So if we do decide that this training is something we need to do on some scope or level, then how are we going to evaluate whether or not it actually had success within the organization, right? So those are two different pathways determining whether or not we should do it in the first place. And then if we do decide we're going to do it in the first place, how are we measuring success afterwards? And so when you're thinking about the overall business impact, you're thinking about, will this impact, let's say, safety? So safe compliance, right? We all have safety classes. We all do because the government has its fingers in our training courses and the government likes to see safety training. We got to do that. Okay, so now what's the business impact? I do the emergency response training for a large utility company. And the responsibility is is that we've got 400 upper management employees or management employees who need to be able to implement our emergency response plan. And of course, that's dictated by the FIMSA, which is the uh, Pipeline and Hazard Material. So it's a federal code or mandate that we train and they're responsible and they know all this. So we have a lot of hoops we have to jump through to make sure that they get what they need to do. So 
back to the original question that somebody was asking is, you know, how do you get to a certain point? We work backwards when they mm-hmm. walk out of there. What do they need to know when they walk out of here? What are the most important things they need? And of course, the uh, lately for us, it is the initial, as we call a uh, incident review uh, system that they have to go through. We started out doing pre-post test before they took the training. We do a pre-test analysis. And then uh, when they were done, we'd give them a post-test analysis. We found out that that uh, didn't work because our training department, for lack of a better word of saying, was probably a little too lazy to do the real true follow through to get the comparison between the pre and post. So they weren't following up and doing what, what should be done. So what we did is we went to a pre-introduction. So we have our, uh, this year, we actually have our uh, president of our company giving an introduction to the group to tell them how important this is to the company and to them and to our customers. And then what we do is we have the training and we have a post-assessment, which is, again, part of the requirement for the uh, for our FIMSA requirements and so on. But then we also do a survey. And I think what JD was saying, we use a two-part survey. The first eight questions of a 12-question survey are, you know, one through five, satisfactory, excellent type of thing. Questions like the activities and examples provided improved the effectiveness of the course, things like that. And then the last four questions we use are open-ended questions where they have to actually fill in what it is that they either gain from or need, you know, what can we do to improve and all that. So it's like this ping pong type of thing. So that's part of what we look at. We really do look at working that thing backwards because it's really mm-hmm. important that our management employees are dealing with it. So exactly. And I think this is the way any training program should be handled. You're reverse engineering it and beginning with the end in mind. So when you've got those two things together, then the odds of you connecting learning to or lessons to learning to action then becomes more successful, right? The propensity for success increases. And that's what we're looking for. And we're looking for, even with leadership development programs, it's what is the overall business impact? What are we hoping for people to get out of this that's going to improve themselves, but also improve the business? And a lot of times that's succession planning. I think it was Amanda who was alluding to this. So you you see greater growth, right, in people. You see them moving up within the organization. You see retention numbers, you know, are lower than they might have been in the past, right? And so those are all business matrix that we can attribute to any training program that we put out. It's just a matter of planning it at the very beginning. So I'll, again, throw it to you as to what other sorts of matrix are you looking for or that you use to support the training programs that you currently have? So right now, we have a lot of these training programs that don't have the evaluation built into them. Mm -hmm. And I went to a training magazine webinar from Phillips Associates, I think. Let me, I have a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, they talked about predictive questions. And so I've been trying to implement those into our surveys. The one that seems like the most universally applicable is a learning game score. So you ask, what did you know before the training? 
And now that you've had the training, what do you know after the training? And you get kind of a difference and see if they've learned anything mm-hmm. or feel like they've learned anything. So you don't really know if they learned anything. You're just getting their opinion. <laughs> That's been useful to give numbers to our training. I don't know how solid the information is, but it is a number, which is not something we've had in the past. Right. Right. It's baby steps. And -hmm. in this case, that type of pre and post assessment, which uh, several of you have already mentioned, that pre and post assessment more falls towards the line of you think about level two evaluation, which is learning. What did they learn during the the training session? So that's a Kirkpatrick level two. But that even that, like you said, it's better than just depending on level ones, which are the smile sheets. Those are the reactions, whether or not people like the training etc. It's one step closer, which is great. And that's where we all need to be. We need to be taking those one step closer to being able to really getting and assessing if this is adding impact or adding value to the business. That's the ultimate goal, right, Kelly? Yes. The ultimate goal is, was there impact? Was there change? And right now, every keystroke in Salesforce is being recorded. Mm -hmm. Everything is being recorded in Salesforce. We have a new knowledge management program where they can see how many people have opened the documents, how many people have clicked links. And I'm looking at this going, okay, here's what I need. This is, it gave me access to at least the document (laughs) management one because I, you know, I create job aids. How many people use the job aids? Well, only 67 people out of 400 use the job aids, but I'm happy that 67 people, at least 67 people clicked on it. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah. But this is where L&D professionals really need to start going and saying, where is the data? If we did Thank a you. program yes. of a new product launch or new, are they inputting the data correctly into Salesforce? How many problems there are? What is the average time that it takes people to input an order? And before mm-hmm. the course, and then we teach them how to do it, then what's the average time after? Is there a difference between somebody that's a new hire at two weeks in or four weeks in and then six weeks, is their rate of input decreasing? And those are the questions that I'm asking. And people get like, yeah, we could do that, but we'd have to, then it, the resource issues come in. It's right. like, well, yeah, we have people working over in data anal- analytics, but that would mean they'd have to stop working on another program. But I think by me even raising the issue, I'm starting to get people to think about it. Yes. I know that data is in Salesforce. Absolutely in Salesforce. Salesforce records everything. And the views in the new document management system, absolutely, it's in there. I have yet to successfully get the information, but I am at least asking. Well, and I think that's important because you can show causation there, or at least correlation, where you can say, Our most successful salespeople do this. They access the documents. They go through um, this process. They use that process, right? So our more successful salespeople do these things. And so you Mm -hmm. can show that there's a um, a correlation, if nothing else, between the two things. That's a good point. I was looking at it from my stuff, but yes, I am thinking about are the people that are the most successful salespeople using the one pagers that is supplied by marketing? 
that's a really great question. I don't think we've ever asked that. Mm-hmm. Good point, Shannon. Thank you. <laughs> to circle this back around to the to the topic at hand, how we are asking questions matter. Again, beginning with the end in mind, what questions do we need the answers to? How are we going to find the answers to those questions? What data sets are we using? Right? Because as Kelly said, the data is out there. It's just a matter of finding it and harnessing it. And a lot of times people will say that level four evaluations, you know, that's hard to do. My pushback on that is that it's not hard. It's time consuming. You know, it takes time because sometimes the data isn't available when you want it to be available. You have to wait for it because sometimes, you know, safety data, for example, that might only be available once a quarter or once a half, you know, so you have to wait. So it takes a little bit more time. It's not necessarily hard, especially if you plan it up front, right? Exactly, Heather. You want better data, ask better questions. That's perfect. We don't ask the right questions. And this leads us back to the conversation today. There's all sorts of resources out there. You got Will Thalheimer, who has his own sort of evaluation matrix and and the way to go about creating, quote unquote, level four. He calls it something different. That's why I say, quote, in his book. So there's different ways to go about it. It's just a matter of thinking about it before you put the learning program out into the world. If we try to back into it, it's too late. We can't say a training program has been successful if we haven't thought up front about what success is going to look like, because then the program may have been designed incorrectly. So if you're looking for certain success matrix and you didn't design that learning program to show you those success matrix, then what? So now you can't measure it. So this is why we have to think about these things up front. What else are you guys looking at? Any um, parting tips, tricks? For example, one thing that I used to like to do when I was back in corporate America, I used to keep a steering committee going. And that steering committee used to have managers and users, business leaders in it to sort of sense check what we were doing as an L&D department. Were we doing the right things? Were we headed in the right directions? Were we measuring the right outcomes? What is it that we were doing? So that was one thing that I like to do. And so what is it that you guys like to do? What sort of tips would you give each other for trying to ensure that your programs are indeed reaching the audience or reaching the outcomes you're hoping for them to reach? So we'll get a group of influencing individuals together and just talk about, and I try to steer them through what objectives do we want? Mm-hmm. What do we want to look at? Where Where is this training going and why are we doing it? So it's it's kind of the that needs analysis with people who can understand where we want to go with it and then mm-hmm. tie it back to mm-hmm. some type of organizational directives, mission, vision, values, that type of thing, or even mm-hmm. performance competencies. I like that. Good. They like to get together. They they love to chat. So it's a very <laughs> valuable resource for me. It helps me because I just started here. So I'm still trying to get my arms around the culture and the organization and things like that. So they help me a lot get uh, kind of put my finger on the pulse of my boundaries, where I can go, what I can say, where I can, mm-hmm. you know, say it and things like that. So they help a lot. Right. That's very helpful, isn't it? And it I is. think if we just have a conversation you don't know what's going to pop up in the middle of a conversation where you're like, Ooh, I didn't know that was an issue. Oh, okay. I've learned something new today. What else are you guys doing? What other tips do you have for each other? 
For post-course survey, I actually, because we use um, SurveyMonkey, I create the QR code and I put the QR code at the very end of the course, so on the mm -hmm. last page, and that our company is very data-focused um, and so I kind of tie into the culture that that we're an evidence-based company and we need evidence on our training. You can be part of our evidence. If you like the oh, training, I love let us that. know. If you don't like the training, let us know. And so this is your chance to be part of their, our evidence-based culture. And so I put the QR code up there and I definitely increased the amount of people giving feedback on a mandatory information security course. I didn't want to use the link that I use RISE because it takes them out of the course and then there's LMS problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like anytime you leave the, the window, then they don't right. get a course complete. And so I didn't want them to do that. But, you know, everybody has a mobile phone and people seem to really like taking surveys on mobile phones. Like they just love it. So, so that's what I did. And people said, yeah, and I definitely got a much higher response rate because I put the QR code on the last page of the rise on the thank you. Uh -huh. So that, that seemed to help. And now, now I'm building that in to all custom courses that I say, even though this was a compliance, a mandatory compliance course, we still want to hear what you have to say about it. Cause I don't want to put bad learning out there. And, right. And if people have, something to say. I want to hear it. I've got a tough skin. I mean, so. <laughs> well, I love that. Let me tell you, I, I think it's a combination things there, Kelly, and you all can tell me whether or not you agree. I think the words matter. And the fact that you said that we are an evidence-based company and the information you're providing me with is evidence-based data. I think that says something. So the way that you phrased that, I think it's very important. And I'd be willing to bet that that also has something to do with the fact that very smart of you to add a QR code there at the end for people to do. But I think that the way that you phrased it to the public, I think that that was spot on. Yeah. JD put it here, do your surveys allow for anonymous responses? Absolutely. I guarantee an anonymous, our people department broke that code of anonymous surveys and I went to the general counsel and said, this is unacceptable. And if it's anonymous, it's anonymous. So I have actually trained most of the people in our department and in other departments how to ensure that SurveyMonkey is actually anonymous. It's a, a little further down the menu, but I really believe in anonymous surveys. And I will even show people where I've, and I've had people ask if it's anonymous and I send them, this is the you know right. screenshot. This is where it says anonymous. I do not collect IP addresses. Oh, good. Good. And I think that that's an important place for us to, to reach a conclusion here is when I'll, I'll make the point that pointing that out to survey takers is critical. It's also critical that we identify the difference between confidential and anonymous. So people do, don't get those two words confused. So they know exactly how that data is going to be used and where it's going to be used. So I think that that's important. And it's important for any sort of assessment that we do. But that said, we are at the top. Of, we are exactly at the top of the hour. So once again, great conversation here. Thank you, everyone, for sharing all of your ideas and your tips and what you're doing for surveys and what you're doing for evaluations. 
very helpful, I'm sure, to everybody who is on the call and will be helpful for um, moving forward with our resources when I get the resources email sent out. So thank you, everybody. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Any special plans, anyone? My plan is not to have any plans, and I'm very excited about that. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Me too. That's, That's what I would like to do. Anyone else doing anything or not doing anything? Thank you, everyone, for hanging with us for another Learning Rebels Coffee Chat. You know, it's always interesting to see the different directions these chats go in. And it turns out, predictably, we all have a different sense of what measuring success looks like. It all started with the question on the table. What processes do you use or could you use to ensure learning initiatives are adding business value? Well, we are tackling this from a variety of different angles and using many different techniques to try to reach at least measuring level three from the Kirkpatrick evaluation model. Meaning we're trying to measure if the training has impacted skills and performance on the job. Some takeaways. Remembering that level three evaluation requires some sort of observation. Now this could mean using pre or post assessments with 360 surveys, work observation with rubrics, and as Kelly stated, using an evidence-informed approach to seeking and gathering data. Is it easy? No. But will the results be worth it? Yes. So your action item, at a minimum, start your learning designs with the question, how will this impact the people and the business and how will we measure it? Before you even begin putting your design document together, think about how improvements will be measured beyond the typical butts in seats approach and whether or not they can pass the test at the end of the day. Business value is what is critical. Adding business impact is what will drive success. So hopefully that is challenge accepted. So you wanna join us live for these coffee chat conversations? And you know you do. Go on over to learningrebels.com and sign on up. In the meantime, stay curious, be rebellious, and take over the world. Bye for now.